welcome to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people who are working on the land and those with ancestral ties to the land. I'm Melissa Kamara. I am a conservationist and an artist here on Hawaii Island. And I'm Clay Traurnicht. I work at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in the Natural Resource Environmental Management Department. And of course, we're always grateful to our sponsor, University of Hawaii. And uh, Clay, go ahead and say the part. The views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of our funders or employers nor those of our guests. So our guest today is Lani Cranpetri, who is a multi-generational ranching family, or she's from one anyway. And you're going to hear a little bit about her growing up on Oahu and then uh, managing Kapapala Ranch, which is one of the larger largest ranches, I feel like, after Parker here in Hawaii Island, which is in the Ka'u district. And um, it's really cool because she's not only, you know, she's Native Hawaiian, graduated Kamehameha schools. She didn't talk too much, excuse me, about it, but um, in fact, she didn't mention it, but I do know she is uh, also has a veterinarian background and a deep appreciation for just animal husbandry, which is something I know zero about and um Come on, you got chickens <laughs> play at farming they actually do the real deal and so cool to just uh, open i think that for those of us who are listening to this podcast mostly from a conservation background just understanding what that is and that it's of value you know it truly is a value for any number of the reasons we'll talk about but um, it was great to talk to, to Lonnie and to just, and to hear, and, you know, we also need to just explain um, maybe some context about land transfers in Hawaii. About 20 years ago, the legislature passed Act 90, which asks that the Department of Land and Natural Resources and the Department of Agriculture, by mutual consent, consider the transfer of land zoned agriculture to the Department of Agriculture from the DLNR. And ranchers and conservationists are long debating since that time about those transfers. And as you can imagine, conservationists would like to see native ecosystems remain within the DLNR, managed by the DLNR, and uh, ranchers would like to have areas zoned agriculture, have those leases being managed by the Department of Agriculture. Um, and Alani was most recently actually in conversations with the previous DLNR chair and the current to negotiate those leaseholds. So she talks a little bit about that um, and just her love of the land, which is, which is again, amazing. Um, yeah. And for sure there is like arguments on the other side. Like right. we're, we're not trying to purport that, you know, it's all, um, it's, this is definitely not one-sided issue. There's concern again, if you, who's going to get access to these leases and yeah. how are they going to manage them in areas where you're either adjacent to, you know, sort of better intact ecosystems, you know, that are kind of critical to watershed management and health. Yeah, and- totally. So, um, Lani, I know from her background is really, you know, frankly, a a huge proponent of setting aside the intact areas. She doesn't mention that in this interview, but I've seen that before. So she's yeah. really, really all about, you know, um, the ranch serving as a buffer zone, you know, ecologically. Uh, and of course, she talks about, you know, that they have to survive economically to make, to have it make any sense whatsoever for them to keep, keep doing this. So, so I have this story that I, I actually wanted to share yeah. this with Lonnie, but, um, 
So I uh, mentored this Hawaiian student, Tanya. We had a project that was associated with the state, the vision of forestry and wildlife. And what they wanted to do is kind of understand how they could work with ranchers to improve fire management uh, at at Pu'uva'ava. What Tanya ended up doing is she went out, talked to these families and started, they, they were like, I couldn't believe this. And I don't think anyone else could have done this. Like I couldn't have done this, but basically she formed this relationship with these guys and they just opened their books and she just looked at Mm -hmm. the economics Mm -hmm. of like what was going on. And when they actually looked at it, they're basically barely breaking even. And it was only if they didn't count their labor, (laughs) you know, so they actually counted their labor, they're all, you know, lose money. And, um, so, you know, that was really information, you know, informative for the state. Cause they're like, Oh man, like we can't just expect them to do what we want them to do. Right. That this is like, we need to, we need to work in this relationship. But what she ended up kind of going way deeper dive and doing tons of interviews with ranchers across, uh, we'll see on big Island, but, um, mm-hmm. she's from Kauai. So she, she talked, talked to some yeah. family friends there as well. And she started like piecing this kind of history together, um, of Paniolo culture and what she, her sort of perspective on this and, Paniolo culture is like traditional ecological of knowledge. Course. It's equivalent. It's on the same scale as managing low E as managing uh, uh, local e, uh, fish ponds. She just was couldn't believe the value in the knowledge that these folks had of how to manage lands at scale. Like when we talk about landscapes, this is where these guys are thinking, right? It's like huge extents um, and it's sort of, I think unparalleled really uh, to any other kind of system or, you know, type of land management. I mean, we do big fences and things like that and then there's reforestation, but nothing really at the same extent of land that, that ranchers are are dealing with. Yeah. I realized that we couldn't have a podcast called land and people and not talk to farmers and ranchers in Hawaii. And but uh, to course, recognize yeah. that just because you're a rancher doesn't mean you don't have a relation with the land. You have deep relation no, with the land. Course, and in yeah. fact, you have deep relation to the animals that have been on this landscape. And that's totally underappreciated. Not to mention, you know, fire, weeds. We've seen what's happened in central Maui. I mean, the same thing could happen in any number of places. It has happened. I think of like Dillingham. I think of those areas. It's like super fire prone. It's so much more economical to grow houses and not cows or or food. And we need all the tools. This is what I mean. What say constantly? We just need every tool on the table to sort of walk away and say you can't use this because it had these, you know, historical consequences. Is um, it's unrealistic? Unrealistic, and just what? What else are we going to do? We've got you know, we we see this 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 fun fact all the time in fire. There's like a million acres of non-native grassland shrubland out there. Like one, that's mm-hmm. a quarter of the state land area um, is potentially usable for this practice, right? But, yeah. You know. I think we all can agree, those of us listening to this podcast, that we do want open space. And yeah. I mean, um, for any number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is, again, to produce food and getting serious, like you said, Clay, about what agriculture means in Hawaii. And I think maybe we're finally, we didn't get too, too much into this, but I think maybe we're finally 
getting to a point where there's getting some momentum in those discussions sort of at the higher levels, hopefully. Um, I kind of see ag in Hawaii and my, from my limiters perspective is where maybe conservation was 30 or 40 years ago. It's just starting to get the awareness. People want to buy locally here. They want to support local farmers. Well, how do we make this happen that we can maintain? And then again, as we get into the interview, the, the value of the knowledge that these guys have and, you know, in order to make this like a viable livelihood for people in the future, I think that's a big challenge that we need to think about. Totally. So with that, uh, I'll introduce our next guest here, Lonnie Cran-Petrie of Kapapala Ranch here on Hawaii Island. Well, welcome, Lonnie. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, welcome. We're just delighted to have you. And gosh, Clay, do you want to just jump in here with uh, yeah, we may as well I I actually <laughs> I cheated a little bit for this interview because I, I found this really wonderful interview with you that was uh, there's transcripts on the Hawaii Cattlemen uh, Council website that I dug up but so I know a little bit about this but I think you know we start everywhere with everyone just asking you tell us about where you're from and experiences that you had like how you connected to the land and maybe people that you know, you, you connected with growing up? Sure. I was born and raised on the Big Island. My parents are both from the Big Island. But when I was born, I was, uh, my dad had an opportunity to go to Oahu and run the Dillingham's Ranch at Mokulei'ia. So that is where I grew up. And it's back when the military still ran uh, the Air Force field down there. Um, they did maneuvers. There was um, you know, there was not much public in in that part of on that part of Oahu. So my dad was there from 1959 to 1975. So I was 15 years old when my dad left to come back to the Big Island for another opportunity, because the Dillinghams, um, you know, as with any piece of land, and as the family gets bigger and broader and more diverse. They, they had notions of selling the property and, and my dad was not interested in being on a, you know, ranch manager on a piece of property that was for sale. Um, so mm. he left and shortly thereafter they did sell the property. Um, so it was a great place to grow up. I, I think that's how you met me was I was speaking of um, my childhood experiences of growing up in the Waianae mountain range and uh, we did run cattle all the way out to Kayana Point, um, up on the plateaus, up where Kokola um, is. Right. And um, it was a great experience. Um, I thought all animals behaved the same way. I, I was surprised to come to a different island and and see that things were different. You know, I, when you're a child, you pretty much think that that's just the way the world is, right? And um, but it was a great place to grow up. The ranch owned the ocean, ocean front. We could ride our horses down on the beach. We could ride up in the mountains. We could look over the, the valleys into Waianae. And it was, it was just a great place to grow up. Yeah, I think that's some of my fondest memories is um, trailing cattle through those mountains. And um, they would just line up and start coming home. We, we would take the cows from Moklia Ranch headquarters area and take them up to Kokola in the summer months 
they would calve and then we would bring them back as pairs and just watching, you know, the cows pick up their calves and they would just be, be you realize how the Waianae mountain range is, you know, the trail to follow the cattle trail that, you know, you would go down into the, to the Canyon and back out the other side. And it was just like a choo-choo train, a line of cattle, you know, cows with their calves and, and just, this is what we're supposed to do. We're going home. And um, Mm -hmm. I just thought that that's the way things were. And it's because the animals knew it. The animals knew it. They were, they were prepared and trained to do what we were asking them to do. And probably Mm -hmm. one of the fondest things I have as a childhood is remembering the Butterhouse Trail. I don't know what they call it today. Um, In the old days, they had a a cabin up on top of the bluff above the, the Dillingham airfield. And they actually made butter up there. And so it was a mule trail that came down that bluff. It was seven or eight switchbacks. And uh, once we got the Kokola, that was a state lease. Um, My dad decided that we were going to take cows and calves up that mule trail. And it was quite an experience. I mean, it was single file. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't want to bump into a hiker on that trail (laughs) if you had several hundred Uh, cattle coming down with their with their calf at side but it was just a magnificent experience and I I didn't realize just how easy my dad made it all work and make made it um, because different areas and different aspects of my life I've found that um, getting animals to do what you want them to do is um, takes training well I was just curious like because the top I think where you're where you're talking about where like Kuokala, you know, the, the sort of top edge of that bluff was, it's kind of all ironwood forest now. And I'm, I'm just kind of wondering what the, what it was like up there. Was it kind of mixed forest and, or was it all pretty open when you were, had cattle up there? It was open. It was open. I, I can't recall exactly what the, the shrubbery was. The ironwoods were just in the gullies just a little bit, not much. Right. No, it was an open plateau. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I I always think about Manoa, like where I live and people, you see these historical photos, even up into like the fifties and sixties, and it was all dairy pasture, the back hills. And I think a lot of folks see it today and they just, they have a hard time imagining it's been any other than just this kind of rainforest, what it is now. It's all, you know, weedy trees, but yeah, it's just, I think that perspective of change over time, I hope people appreciate how quickly things can can change. Absolutely. I got pictures of Kapapala and just open prairie. And you wouldn't imagine in a right. hundred years, um, the diversity of the plants has changed the, the whole landscape. And that landscape, you don't turn back, not without right. a lot of money. Right, right. Yeah. I want to get to that. Um, you you moving to you and your dad and your mom um, moving to Big Island, and you said like the animals behave differently. So how did you um, how did you all become part of Kapapala Ranch after my uh, my dad worked here during C. Brewer's time in the 1950s, so he knew the ranch. Uh, my mom's family mm. actually goes back to the 1800s of being a part of this ranch. So Mm -hmm. my mom had a affinity to wanting to come back and my dad knew the place. And um, when they left Oahu to come back to the big Island, uh, it was to go to a ranch on um, 
on the Hamakua side. And we were there for two years and it didn't pan out the way my dad had hoped. So at that time, Parker Ranch was looking to get out of Kapapala. And um, it was bigger mm. than what my, my dad wanted. Um, but it was available and my mom liked mm -hmm. it here. And so we came back. Mm -hmm. I was 17. I had just okay. graduated from Kamehameha. So to come here and then have to go off to college, it was pretty tough. Um, my my dad always had a, an agreement with my brother and I that we had to leave Hawaii for one year. We, he didn't care what we did, but we, after high school, needed to leave the state for one year. And um, I decided okay. to go to college. And so that's what took me away. Okay. But then I've been here at Kapapala ever since. So it was not what you wanted maybe at the time when you left. No. And I think this, the thing about Kapapala was, I, I, I might as well just start right now with my, my analogy of the three-legged stool. Yeah. You have Please. your ecological leg, you've got your economic leg, and you got your sociological leg of a, a stool, a three-legged stool. Mm -hmm. Those stools don't have, I mean, the legs don't have to be e equal, but- in order for mm -hmm. the, the stool to work, you have to have all three. And so when we came to Ka'u, if you think about it, the economic leg of that stool, any, any plantation community knows, or anybody that grew up with the plantations, and I did at Waialua, Sugar, mm -hmm. the economic component was very strong. You know, they built hospitals, they built communities, they built churches. Yeah. They farmed the land, they had purpose, they, they were economically driven. You know, then as decades roll by and we look back at the ecological leg of that era, we realize the, I, I, I don't think the word is mistakes. I don't think there are mistakes. There's just, mm -hmm. there's trends, there's patterns. We move, we, um, society moves. And, um, Brewer owned the ranch and the sugar plantation for 99 years. The emphasis was on sugar. Was it good? Was it bad? Well, it was right. over time, it was not healthy for the ranch. Um, mm -hmm. The ranch mm -hmm. continued to have the better lands withdrawn and it left the ranch with more marginal lands. Well, what happens economically? You know, your productivity goes down. Right. So your cost goes up. Mm -hmm. uh, when we came here, you know, Parker bought Brewer's interest in Ka'u in 1975. They were here at Kapapala for two years and realized that this place was just too far run down. It was, um, the fences were mm. falling down. There was no water system. Um, the ranch suffered to the sugar company, even though they were owned by the same corporation. Um, I feel sorry for the, the last ranch managers. They, they were under a lot of pressure. Yeah. Right. When we came here, you know, coming from Dillingham, that's why I wanted to start my three-legged stool. Uh, the Dillinghams were financially stable. Uh, they owned the land other than the Kukla mm -hmm. lease, which they got later. Um, they were very economically driven uh, family corporation. Um, my dad did everything it had to make financial sense, but that three-legged stool was a lot more balanced where I grew up. Um, and I just thought the mm -hmm. world operated that way. But when we came here, um, there right. was definitely one of the big five sugar companies. 
and they were driven by different things. Uh, the ranch was yeah. not, you know, ranches were very profitable until about when we saw the World War One and Two, especially World War Two, because the technology of refrigeration started to bring in meat from the continental United States. Up until then, uh, the community, our consumer base, was used to eating grass-fed beef and beef that wasn't always consistent. I guarantee mm-hmm. that grass-fed steers that were raised in Kau didn't have the same eating quality as grass-fed beef that was raised on Oahu. You know, you have a million years difference in in land succession. The the lands to the west of the state are are much more developed. But you had a, a population that was used to eating meat that was diverse and it could be tough, it could be tender, it could be whatever. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, right. around the 1940s, you got meat coming in from California. And California was the first state to start feeding animals byproduct feeds and uh, grains. They were the first. Grains. Yeah. And, and we were close by steamship. You know, the meat was coming in. And all of a sudden, our industry was having to compete with a totally different beef product. And since then, ranching has not been as profitable as it was from the mm-hmm. mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. I was just going to say what you're about to say, which is just, you know, agriculture on the world market, right? I mean, that's kind of what exactly. um, is like makes it so hard in Hawaii, right? In, in some ways, but then go ahead, Clay. Did that change your perspective about ways that would help ranchers that maybe from government assistance, maybe anything that would ways that ranchers needed to change the way that they did business uh, to survive. You mean back in the 1950s and 60s? Yeah. As I guess you're growing up in that. Yeah. Uh, so what, I mean, business to survive has got to be able to respond and respond quickly. So what happened in the, in the late fifties, early sixties, out at Barber's Point, Parker Ranch and a few other large ranchers built the Barber's Point feed yard. And Barber's Point mm. was important because you could bring whole grain barges right in there to the port. And it, uh, right. it was a place mm. where we could get stay competitive with what the consumer wanted to mm-hmm. eat. But as time went on. Gotcha. Uh, and then you also bring it to Oahu. Yeah, you bring the, the feeder cattle, the smaller, younger animals to Oahu. And they were finished at the at the feed yard there, Hawaii Meats. And then at that time, you had the two com- competing meat companies was Hawaii Meat and Kahua. Both had their own slaughterhouses. But all the animals statewide were pretty much fed through that, that Barber's Point feed yard, where, where we had a okay. uniform <laughs> grain-finished beef product that could compete with what was coming in from the mainland. Um, yeah. And actually, the big thing that kicked over the dominoes was urban sprawl. The Hawaii Meat Company uh, plant was on Middle Street, where the bus station is now, right next to Love's Bakery. Oh, wow. And okay. condemnation, the plant was condemned. I, I, I'm going to say it was probably in the 80s. The stockholders, Parker Ranch being the largest owner, decided that they weren't going to build another meat company. That started the dominoes dropping. So you got right. the largest meat company in the state deciding that they are not going to process carcass beef anymore. And 
Parker mm-hmm. Ranch had early 90s had already experimented taking shiploads of light calves off their moms weaned to Canada and they were moving boatloads of calves to Canada so they no longer needed that feed yard at Barber's Point in 91 92 you saw a complete flip in the in the cattle industry in our state from being uh, a state where 90% of the cattle calves raised here were grown out finished and and slaughtered and consumed here to by 92, 93, it was just the opposite. 90% of the cattle grown here, uh, born here, mm-hmm. were shipped off and out of state. And it happened very quickly. Yeah. And that's, I go back to my three-legged stool. That's economics that drove that. And, you know, Honolulu mm-hmm. was sprawling out and the industrial, you know, just like you said, the dairies in Manoa, they're gone. Yeah. Um, a mm-hmm. meat processing yeah. plant yeah. at Middle Street, gone. At the sheer cost of starting a new mm-hmm. one, they said no. So I, I think one of the things that I think is pretty important about the Hawaiian cattle industry today is that we are able to compete in a global market. You know, there's very few commodities grown here that stay here. Um, you know, honey's exported, right. macnuts exported. Macnuts are in a, a huge dilemma right mm-hmm. now with the, the world market um, and our Hawaiian producers unable to sell macnuts. And so when I look at the Hawaiian ranchers as being able to stay competitive right. yeah. in a global market, mm-hmm. I, I think that's something we should be proud of. Um but where do we go from here? I think, you know, what does it take to keep these cattle in Hawaii? Um, right. A lot. It's going to take a lot. Yeah. Right. Um, first off, you look at this ranch. When they were, when this was a fully grass finished ranch, um, it ran on twice as much land. And I think you're going to either have mm-hmm. to see a reduction in the cow herds or an increase in the, the amount of acreage that's available to taking that 400-pound wean calf up to a 1,200-pound live animal. Here's the big glitch. On our Hawaiian tropical grasses, it's going to take you two years to put on that 800 pounds. You take that animal to temperate climate, grasses, feeds, even just the temperature. The, the Cattle are temperate climate animals. That 800 pounds will be put on in half the time. And that's a tough nut to crack. I just wanted to ask, so even if all of the lands, let's just say like all the lands at in Act, Act 90 were transferred tomorrow, you know, and those became available for ranching and farming, could that, could they be finished here in the islands? And I guess the reason I'm asking is I'm just thinking about like food security and, you know, like the last pandemic and global you know, market disruptions and, and shipping and so forth. What, what are your thoughts about just, just making more land available? Does it, does it, you, you're so familiar with the numbers, which is great because Clay and I don't know anything about any of this. So it's really cool to review it, but like, you know, would it make, could, is there a way that it could happen financially if the more land was available or, or it's just hard? To answer your question in reference to Act 90, no. If those lands were made available, they would just give cow-calf producers, ranchers like ourselves, the stability of Mm -hmm. knowing that we could continue. 
And it takes pretty good land. Um, yeah. The lands of Kapapala on the very, very best that we have, which is small acreage, we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. You know, we're we're marketing twelve to 1,400 animals a year. And the acreage that we have mm-hmm. that would be suitable for fattening cattle, putting on that 800 growing and then fattening cattle, that next 800 pounds we only have a couple hundred acres that can do that. So it's uh, not just more right. acreage, it's more of the right kind of acreage. Let's talk about food security. You know, we export the calves, but the factory are the cows. And the factory after 10 years or 11 years is depreciated. That cow's not going to be productive raising a calf mm-hmm. anymore, but that doesn't mean that she herself is not uh, does not have value as food. So you take our ranch, for instance, um, the the replacement of the factory comes to about 150,000 pounds of meat, not cattle, not carcass, but meat. What is 150,000 pounds of meat on an annual basis? What is that? Well, that's a million square yeah. lunches. Wow. Yeah. That's the ability to feed East Hawaii for one week in the middle of a crisis. Right. You take the ranches that are on East uh, East Hawaii and multiply them all out in a crisis, just our cull animals, that, that factory replacement is enough to feed. And I, I'm talking about East Hawaii, you poor guys on Oahu. Although Oahu should sure be thinking about it because of all of the, <laughs> yeah. It was a game changer for us. The, the 2018 missile scare, where were you and what did mm. you do? Well, I can tell you what we did. So my husband and I very quickly within 15 minutes, we're back at our home thinking about what we're going to do. You know, the clock's ticking. When's the, when's that missile going to hit? And what we did is we figured out how we yeah. could feed our community within 45 minutes. My husband and I had mapped out, Um, Because the one thing about livestock is they don't need to be fully mature to have the the total nutrition, protein and fat and vitamins and minerals is the same in a in a 400 pound animal as it is in a 1200 pound animal. And so we were sitting on about 700 three to 400 pound calves at that time when that missile strike hit uh, the alert. And we figured out very quickly how we could transform those calves into usable meat to at least feed a 10 mile radius from our central location. So I think that's one of the things that has evolved in my mind is that you don't eat a green papaya. You know, you don't eat a sweet potato that's not mature. But in our case, in our industry, you can. And so that is where I think our role becomes very uh, feasible. And, And the other thing is, when you look at a smaller animal, they're much easier to manage to harvest in the meat protein than a 1200 pound animal. Look at the nomadic people. I'm interested in watching how the nomads lived and their animals traveled with them and they got meat and, you know, milk until they needed more meat. Then they slaughtered the cow, you know, and 
you know, the calf was already ready to start producing milk. And the livestock industry is pretty unique because you can keep your animals, you can, you don't need refrigeration. You keep your animal alive on forage until you're ready and you need it. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, we've been invited into some conversations and I've encouraged the Cattlemen's Council to get active in an emergency plan. I think that 2018 showed us what an emergency can look like. Um, but we as ranchers with a tremendous source of food have to figure out how we can get that distributed to people in need. I was invited to sort of an emergency, a disaster management hearing, or I don't know what it was called, informational briefing at the legislature. Talk about fire. The guy before me was talking about hurricanes and they had done this case study of Katrina and Hurricane Maria. And he looked at, was looking at Honolulu and just basically illustrating how vulnerable we are, right? That there's basically one port entrance that has the capacity to do these container ships at high capacity. And then basically if that shuts down, you're on like a clock, basically, yeah. you know, three weeks till all foods depleted. You know, those are these numbers. I was like, oh man, like this is pretty, pretty scary. But then to think about distribution within the islands, you know, he's not even getting there. He's like, there's no other, you know, container or places, ports on the other islands that have the capacity. And it's basically Honolulu Harbor is it. So yeah. um, it's it's pretty uh, astounding when you see that those, uh, what those numbers are and uh, the population that's here dependent on that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that the missile scare has taught us. Um, you know, where are, where's our weak links? You know, fortunately for us, our water now mm-hmm. is all mm-hmm. at high elevation. We do not need... Um, fossil fuel to move water, but we, we need pipe fittings, you know, pipes break. We need some fuel, not as much as we used to, but I think that our business has reevaluated crisis and crisis management and cannot overlook the value of a horse and its ability to eat grass. And yet, right. um, no, you won't get there as fast as an ATV but you get there without any fuel <laughs> and no flat tires, you know? So, right. Yeah. Right. Um, so that actually leads me to a, an earlier question I had wanted to ask you um, because Clay and I both are like growing up. I grew up in the, you know, the city Clay grew up in Long Island. Neither of us were riding horses. I only learned much later when I went to go live on Haleakala ranch, how to even like do any of that. But um what is your perspective riding a horse, you know, being raised on a ranch, like having that um, understanding and perspective of the land? Because I often think of like, you know, we go into these natural areas, you know, that we all know and love, like these remote areas, and we get there largely by driving to them, right? And so I think about all the people from before that would get to like Hawaii volcanoes or who would get to Haleakala Crater on horse, or before that on foot. And I think that that approach to those places is utterly and totally different than our, than the way we access these places now. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that and like, what's your perspective like growing up on a ranch and horseback? Horses are an amazing tool. Um, I think growing up and even until the last probably 12 years, we predominantly used horses I think one of the nicest things that horses, when 
when you're riding, you don't have to look at where you're putting your feet. They do that. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that they're very quiet. You know, you shifting to ATVs, which we have. This ranch has a lot of brush, so we've always ended up tying up your horse and having to walk in places. And not that you can't lead your horse through a lot of places, but I really love my saddle and I don't like getting it all beat up. So, <laughs> but horses are quiet. Uh, using an ATV, you you lose your sense of sound uh, hearing, which is really valuable. I, I mean, uh, when we do have to work together in, and using quads, I make everybody mm-hmm. turn them off, like just turn them off so that you can hear, you can hear the animals, you can hear you know, in the, in the old days when we didn't have radios, walkie talkies or cell phones, you had to be, you know, use your senses. Um, you could see that some pigs got stirred out of some brush. Well, then you know that probably somebody's dog and someone's in there. Um, and so you, I think the biggest thing of what we learned growing up working on horseback was patience. You learn to wait. Mm-hmm. You learn to to use all your senses where today with radios and cell phones and horsepower, be it, you know, ATVs or drones or whatever, everybody's in a rush. Yeah. Yeah. They don't use their senses (laughs) anymore and use horsepower instead of, instead of using your brain because you can work animals from a long distance away just by positioning your body by standing sideways versus standing straight on. Animals can see you and they understand that perspective a half a mile away. You don't have to yeah. rev your your ATV at, you know, and zoom off to get these animals to do what you want them to do. And that's what I think we've lost. Um, being on horseback, you, you didn't have a lot of horsepower like you do with ATVs. Give you a really good example. This kind of uh, he, this man has passed away now, but his name was Bud Williams, world renowned for his ability to handle livestock, hurting hurting animals, and the Lapland people that raised reindeer for generations had totally lost their ability to understand and manage large herds of animals. And so they hired this guy from Texas and he went up there and they had snow machines. And in two weeks he taught and he didn't want anybody that sort of knew something. He wanted no, he wanted to start with the greenest greenhorns and he taught them how to manage herds. And and the big thing that you have to understand about animals that herd is that it's the release of pressure that is the reward. Ah. And that's what so many people don't understand. And so you can, you can herd by snowmobiles. You can herd with helicopters. You can herd with horses or on foot. It's the release of pressure that allows the animals to go, oh, (laughs) people don't understand that, that you can't keep pushing, 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 because herding animals want to stay together. And really a man on a horse is not a predator, a dog or a wolf. Now that's a predator and you watch how they move. And when they face straight on and they drop their head down between their shoulders, a herding animal, that's a 
huge sign to a herding animal. A man on a horse is not a predator. Mm -hmm. And so people Mm -hmm. on horses, people on ATVs, helicopters, they have to learn the pattern behavior of a predator in order to handle prey animals. So interesting. it doesn't matter what source you're using. And actually, Bud Williams did some amazing work up in the Aleutian Islands um, just on foot. He and his wife. It's a talent that we're losing. A society is losing. Um, it's interesting how yeah. people think you just have a pasture and there's a pen and you just push all these cattle and it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that at all. Yeah, that, that leads me, Lonnie, to, uh, I mean, you're talking about the three legs and I, I'm really curious and I'm going to kind of bounce them all over the place here, but in the sense of the sociological perspective, and I just mean more directly on the ranch, how I think it's a huge issue because we, you know, we talk about fire all the time and people that have been working kind of on conservation are starting to like get it that, okay, yeah, we, we need to work with animals. It's like a pretty fundamental tool that can help us reducing fire risk, but then they're in these situations where they don't, there's nobody to turn to, right. Or like they just, so we've got people kind of relearning from scratch or trying to figure it out. I'm just curious how, you know, where we're at here in Hawaii, as far as like that next generation, what's a way forward that we, you know, can kind of hang on to this information and where do you see it? Maybe at Kapopala uh, going in the future. I'm glad you brought that up because I think we all get a bad rap for our stockmanship. And I mean, I can tell you places on this ranch that are very hard to handle, uh, but you can't ignore the economic leg of that stool either. They're remote. Probably right. the biggest challenge we have here at Kapapala is the sulfur. And fences are obsolete now as the last decade of volcanic activity is bringing, the, the, bringing us back, according to USGS, back to normal levels uh, the last century, Halemaumau was pretty quiet. Right. We're finding that we can't use fences like we used to. So I, I don't blame the general public for going, oh, my God, look at how poorly managed some of these these livestock are. And yet we're faced with economic and ecologic challenges. Yeah. But good stockmanship is impressive. And we mm-hmm. use... Um, Meat goats, we use goats for brush control. Um, and mm-hmm. the smaller the animal, the easier they are to herd in general. You know, sheep, for instance, uh, they're, they're very easy to herd. And yet, and I went and helped some people with their sheep one day, and I realized that people have lost that understanding of it's the release of pressure that allows a herding mm-hmm. species to get comfortable and relaxed as a group. And people have lost that. Could you explain that concept a little bit more? I don't know if I'm understanding it right. Like if they're in a tight group, is it that they're going to listen to you because they know the reward is to... You're backing off. It's like you're backing off. You're you're backing off of them later. Like what does that mean, release of pressure? When they start going where you want them to go, then back off. Because if you keep putting pressure on them, they're going to think they're doing the wrong thing. Does that make sense? I see. Totally. Think about students in a classroom. If they're passing their times tables, you know, they're doing their their times four tables and they're doing it really good. And the teacher just goes, great, here's the fives. You know, (laughs) at what point does the student go, wow, don't I get a pat on the head for passing my fours? (laughs) So it's, it's the same concept, 
but a little different because humans aren't. We all want that point where we can say, hey, we did that right. And so when your animals Mm -hmm. are headed in the right direction, you know, the movies just crucify this, you know, the movies (laughs) and, and Yellowstone, even though I like it, uh, same. (laughs) Anyway, um, there's, there's a point where you've got to release that pressure. Lonnie, I did want to ask you about Yellowstone because I'm super addicted to that show. And I, and like some people are like, oh my God, that is so, that's not how it really is. And then I'm like, (laughs) just for fun. So you watch it, I take it. I do. I like it. I like it really well because I think the 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 political and the environmental things that that ranch is based with are true fact, true. And mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you think about the some of the scenes of the you know the diner and Kevin Cosner goes in there and but you know what? Um, to protect your livestock out in the middle of these fields and moonlight nights, it was full moon last night. There's mm-hmm. a lot of truth to what we have to do to protect our, our animals. And it's, it's, yeah, that it's not all uh, fun and roses. And I, I think you'll find most ranchers hate moonlight nights because there's a whole nother class of people that comes out on moonlight nights and it's not pretty and it's dangerous. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you're talking about people that are going to steal your, steal your animals. Human predators. Stealing is one thing. Um, just the presence of, you know, night hunting, poaching pigs, you go back to these herding animals, they're startled in the middle of the night. You know, they're not nocturnal. They're um, frightened. They, I mean, how many times in this one area, we, we lose three to four animals a year from broken legs. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They get startled. They run through fences. They jump off cliffs. Yeah, it's real. There's so many people in the world today. It's not like five, six decades ago when I grew up. Um, it's, it's a different world. And I guess I don't want to like think of try to bring us back because I'm still like hanging on a on a thread here waiting for like just what your perspective is thinking about what the world is today and, you know, where you see things going. And maybe it's a a question about like who you guys have working with you now, like who you see coming up. But, you know, we've Melissa and I've talked about this like just offline, like you know, what, how, what are the people that are going to be kind of doing this into the future? And is there, do you guys, do you see, do you have people that you're mentoring that, that will be able to do this work in the future? I, I think that what we have to do is enlighten the population of the value of livestock. Um, it's gotten a lot of bad press and people have lost the the good things that animals can do when they're managed well. And, um, you know, when we move goats, <laughs> it will move seven or 800 with two people walking. Uh, actually, when my dogs were better, I'd move that many by myself. You know, again, again go back to those nomad people, the people that did this for a living and their animals stayed with them. They liked them. They went with them. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think maybe we'll see a more enlightened public, you know, as in the state of California, where they're using sheep and goats for grazing urban areas, um, open space areas. Yeah. Where the the public. Yeah. yeah. I was just at the Society of Range Managers uh, convention and, you know, the one fellow from California, he says, goats are hot. People love goats. They're very personable (laughs) animals. 
And when they're, you know, right at, in the in the park or the open space area in a, a suburb area, people have learned to, like, these are really nice animals, and they are. The pendulum swinging back, that the mismanagement of animals, you know, it, you can't overlook the economic and the sociological legs of those stools as to why animals, right. I mean, I, I've sat there in DLNR meetings and seen pictures of animals in forested areas and, you know, koi trees all chewed up. And But I ask, go back to the land policy. How long was that property on a revocable permit? Oh, right. you know, oh, well, that doesn't count. Well, yeah, it does count. You know, you can't have um, improper use of land by animals that need decades to be managed. You can't be blocking them into right. a 30-day revocable permit. And so it's all tied together. And I'm a big advocate of holistic resource management and um, political component Mm -hmm. is -hmm. what sets the stage for all landscape goal setting. And Lonnie, um, just thinking about your role with the Keohoe Fire, I mean, I'd love for you to tell our audiences, like what a critical role you folks, you know, played in just everything related to that, you know, for everything from like keeping weeds at bay, you know, in surrounding natural areas, like um, to helping with water, right? right? I mean, it's huge. And I think rather underappreciated. Yeah. Well, as we see the trend, you know, more and more lands are being put into conservation. Um, the national park used to be part of Kapopala Ranch. Uh, the state forest reserves used to be part of Kapopala Ranch, the Kau and Kapopala. Keoho Ranch, uh, it's all on Kamehameha Schools lands. Mm-hmm. It was a ranch um, up until about 25 years ago, mm-hmm. 30 years ago. That fire started in, in Keoho Ranch, and it was started in an area that was, uh, they were planting mm-hmm. koa trees. They had sprayed Roundup to get the grass load back and down, and it got started by a machine that was in there doing what it was hired to do mm-hmm. um, to prepare the ground for, for coa seedlings. It's the fire started. It quickly ran through the, the herbicided grass. It got to the national park boundary, which was uh, yeah. had decades of fuel loads and just exploded. It got to our boundary about 24 hours later. We were the number one or second person to call in when we saw the smoke. I had happened to be up moving cattle on the north end of the ranch when I saw it. And we had mobilized our, we have a D8 tractor. We had it up on scene in four hours. So we had equipment to the fire. We had manpower to the fire. And of course we had water thanks to our um, our new water system that we had recently put in, all gravity fed water. But the biggest thing is that we, we didn't have the fuel load um, on our side of the fence because it was grazed. But we manned that fire for five Mm -hmm. nights and six days because we didn't have the money to buy feed for all that grass that would burn. So for us, it was very economically driven that we had to be on that fire night and day because if we lost that grass, um, it, it was food for over 500 cows. The next natural land barrier was a lava flow, several lava flows that could have stopped it, but it would have burned forage for about 500 cows. 
So yeah, we were on that fire, both with our equipment manned fully for five nights and six days. And then um, in the last three days, we filled the state's fire trucks and on the last day, even the national parks, uh, wildfire rigs with water from our Kaniwai water system. But that fire had jumped and was going to head down our east boundary. And my husband just fired up his D8 and just cut a fire. We just went right through the park fence. I mean, at that point, everybody was tired of fighting fire. If that had burned any further, it would have gone for another probably week. Um, But it was the D8 that cut a fire line really quickly um, in a matter of less than half an hour that stopped that fire. But but being economically viable is why we had water and we had equipment that ran. The park had an a tractor without a licensed operator and the state had a tractor here that wasn't repaired. So, and that's not to say that we get any attaboys because there's a lot of times that our tractors broke too, but being in a business, we try to get it fixed pretty quickly. But yeah, it was the first time I really had faced that disaster. That fire that we're talking about was in 2018 and burned about three to 4,000 acres in the national parks. So it started just along the border. Then it had burned like a lot of this sort of uh, second growth koa forest. So there was fire back in the 1970s. Um, you know, and what comes back after that koa comes back like gangbusters. But as Lonnie was saying, what's underneath it all is just Kikuyu, Earhart, like these grasses that just sort of take over. And so there was really nothing to um, stop it. And fortunately, in that fire, it burned a bunch of areas that had not not burned as far as we know before. So it did torch quite a bit of um, native forest, unfortunately, as well. But uh, she, she's exactly right. Like when you have that koa canopy and that's all you have um, – after these older fires, it's, it's not very resilient to, to burning. And so, um, and this is something the park is well aware of. There's not, it's not like this is, this is sort of news to them, but it's just how much land can they kind of do additional restoration on. Um, so it's a little, it's definitely a challenge. It blows me away. I think that, and I, I'm coming at this cause I'm always, I, I find myself uh, also advocating for, uh, for the use of livestock as a, as a management tool. And I think there's a, in general, across the board, the public does not realize how much work it takes to do effective land management for any ecological benefit or if it's food production, whatever. I don't think people have a good appreciation of the work it takes. And then with, even within the folks that do kind of a lot of the work that I'm associated with these days is a lot of, uh, you know, ecosystem protection stuff. And they're doing restoration and weeding in these kind of really nice intact uh, forests. But it's so manini. It's like these teeny patches at the end of the day. And among them, I think there's, uh, you know, it's hard to appreciate the scale, ex- land extent at which ranchers are thinking and have the ability to to affect change. And I, I, that's why I'm always, I'm just so astonished by that skill. And, I, 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 and that's why I'm asking these questions because I'm kind of worried <laughs> that we're losing this ability, right? Uh, especially as you see all this plantation that's just sitting fallow, like everywhere. It's just grass, you know? Um, and we don't, we look at it as like a threat when we think about these watershed forests we're trying to protect. And I'm like, we can just switch that around and it's, it's a resource, right? It's like, it, it has value if we use it and think of it in the right way. I, I think that um, 
we definitely, as a society, has lost the use of livestock as a, a tool for managing land. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose the skill set too, just as those people, the Laplanders, lost their ability to herd their reindeer. I We run goats. We run about 2,000 goats um, in three separate bands. And it's expensive. Land uh, invasive weed control, the way we're going at it, we use um, herders and electric netting fence. It's very expensive. And time and time again, I'm like, we got to stop doing this. And yet when I go out and I look at what six, 700 yeah. goats can do in one night, Heck yeah. in yeah. one day, it blows me away. And I, I realize that I can't get out of using this tool. I have to find a way to make more money yeah. with this this method. Do you see a role that you know, public financing can play in bolstering. I mean, we talk so much about like Department of Ag and I know that they are talking about doing a big agricultural plan for the state of Hawaii, which they do not want it to be top down. They really want ag producers to all come to the table and maybe envision what they would like. I mean, do you, what, what do you see as the role of like the, you know, the state to assist or subsidize portions of like what could I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I've spent the last four years very active at the legislature trying to promote just Act 90, just the transfer of lands from one agency that has a mission to uh, manage natural resources to an agency that is pro-agriculture. Until uh, the livestock industry is able to, you know, stop a wildfire or feed a community Mm -hmm. after a missile attack, uh, we're not going to have the eyes and ears of the people in decision-making places. You know, just something as simple as transferring land from one agency to another has taken 20 years. Right. So I think it's, it's always a case of lead by example. And as an industry, we have to lead by example. We have to show, and, and it's taken I'm serious. I, I need to really count up how many state senators and representatives and agency people have come to this ranch, especially in the last three years. And I, if I can get them on the land, they go, oh, wow, I get it. But to get people to carve out enough time. And and so we're, we're using mm-hmm. things like videos, right? Well, the, there was a little documentary put together three years, two years ago that we showed at the legislature Mm -hmm. and it was on act 90. It was on this ranch and it's the impacts of act 90. Um, That little video about eight minutes long. And that's about all the time you're going to get somebody that's busy with housing and homeless people and, and all the other things that that decision makers have on their plate. You're just going to get little slices of their life to be able to show a, 30 second, you know, look at the Hawaiian Airlines commercial. <laughs> Do you love the Hawaiian Airlines commercial? I love it. Yeah. You know, island, yeah. island style. In just a few seconds. I mean, I even got chicken skin thinking about that commercial. Um, we have to, in, in 30 second windows, be able to get yeah. into people's brains. It comes more with boots on the ground. Um, Do I see myself at some point having a, a, a grazing contract with our goats at um, some area that's in the public's eye and be able to 
just as in the state of California, have the suburbs yeah. go, goats are cool. <laughs> we like goats. To having people on Oahu or, you know, this state is so, um, the conservation mm-hmm. movement is strong. And I can see why, rightfully so, after we had such a strong agricultural sugar industry, pineapple industry, but the pendulum kind of went way out one direction. And us, we in the livestock industry have to put ourselves in a good good context and show the good things that we can do. Um, Our ranch is open for public bird hunting. Where we graze is where the best game birds are. Well, and and I was just listening to that podcast. I was talking about the Seeds of Wellbeing, um, Lonnie, in which they interviewed one of our state senators. I'm sure you must know him. And he was, it was so interesting because he was talking about, you know, the folks there up at the top. Two generations ago, we all had farmers in our, you know, we were all either farming or we had grandparents or fathers who were farming. And like, that's so removed, right? That's like that personal tie. And so yeah. none more so than up at the policy level, <laughs> right? You, I'm, t- I'm preaching to the choir here. You deal with this. People don't know. People are in their own families who are doing this. And so it seems like it's a constant educational. I'm taking that away from talking to you. It's like constant education. I think this tags into what you're saying. A lot of people can get, can drive the cattle to the corral, but do they have the know-how to get them in the gate? Totally. Because to release pressure, to apply pressure, um, actually you can learn a lot about sociology if you learn how to yeah. put animals through a gate because they don't <laughs> want to go in there. And and um, my dad always, he was a big advocate. If you want to learn about governments, just <laughs> understand animals. And um, so- yeah, I think we're we're as a culture we might be able to go out and build a fence and and have some happy sheep or happy goats running around, but can you you can get them to the corral, but can you get them in the game? Yeah. And or you know, somebody asked me on one of those fire meetings. Yeah. I think that's when I met you, Melissa. Um it dawned on me that moving animals from one area to another takes skill and you don't necessarily always right. have to use a trailer. And these are animals that move themselves. And that's one of the powerful things about them is that they don't need to be harvested and put into crates and put on trucks. They can be walked and they can be moved. I'm also so curious, you know, some of the perspective that you working at a place like Kapapala for so long um, can have about land like land cover change, right? That's like the technical term, but just how these landscapes change over time, sort of in the absence or with with good management. Um, And I am reminded of that, again, that interview that I referenced like a long, uh, at the beginning of of the the story about talking about strawberry guava and, and watching that come in. And I think that's something that especially on these music forests on Oahu, but a lot of forests and on, on Big Island across the state, it's just this sort of pernicious weed. Like a lot of people love it, obviously. So, you know, it may be, there's some controversy there, but it is like just this wall that's like pushing into these uh, intact, you know, native habitats. And um, what, what, what have you seen with these, like dealing with weeds on that landscape scale? And what, what have you kind of learned over, over time? The most competitive plant, the most competitive animal is what's going to survive. And for us as people to interface with uh, a force, the force of nature, if you want to call it, 
you know, we have to carve out our landscape as to what we need to build homes or shelters or feed ourselves and how we manage that landscape. Um, because left unmanaged, uh, Mother Nature is going to do what she wants. And it's been very good for me to live at Kapapala. And I've spent my whole life trying to kill guavas <laughs> until I now realize what's the, the role that they play. Because now, in again, and just in my lifetime, we're seeing another plant. You got Faya, America mm-hmm. Faya. grows all over the volcano. Uh, the seeds, the birds spread the seeds really fast. And But now we got Faya killing guava faster than any man ever thought wow. of killing guava. Why? Because it's the agronomy team. The agronomy team, Faya yep. fixes nitrogen. It pulls atmospheric nitrogen. It grows taller than guava. Guava can't stand shade. By observation, we are estimating that Faya is producing, growing about an inch of soil a year in certain places. Crazy. That is That's wow. wild. You know, when you talk about feeding the world, anything that can can develop soil mm-hmm. that quickly. Uh, can I ask you a question? Can you graze in Faya after... I mean, like, what's the, what is, does it, or is it like just a write-off? You'd like, okay, that's just a grove that has gotten taken over. Like, is there any? Nothing in nature is a write-off. I like that. Nothing in nature is a write-off. Mother nature is continually, no, maybe in our, in our lifetime, maybe. That's interesting. Um, No, you can't graze Faya. Faya will completely, it becomes a forest. And it's actually pretty neat to watch it because in time and very like eight years, 12 years, the, the taller tree, the trees will shade each other out. So there's places that 20 years ago were like, I, I'm just going to pick a number, probably 200 fire plants to the acre today are like 10. So they're thinning 10. out already. They're yeah. self thinning. And it's a plant that's not hard to kill. And so at what point do we say, hey, we need that foot of soil? Or can we let Mother Nature keep doing her thing? And in two or three more decades, we'll have three feet of soil. Um, Mother Nature wins in this account. But there's places where we have deep pockets of of soil that are 15 to 20,000 years old. Now we can go in there and make make an impact and get a return on our investment in places like that. Uh, even though the fire is coming in or the guava or, um, you know, we've learned to fight guava or work with guava at above 3,400 feet elevation. If you want to work with it under that, uh, you're going to lose. I think we're just drier mm-hmm. here in Kau as to why we don't have much of it. I, I could talk for hours. I get you're on my favorite subject. I get. No, this is so. <laughs> well, this, this is, is so cool interesting. Because we are like you know, and I, I think having kids kind of really opens your brain a little bit. So because you can get if you kind of come to know Hawaii, like for example, through working on native ecosystems, and you're just like, oh, this is bad. That's bad. These you know these weeds that you're dealing with and trying to kill every day, and then um, 
you know, but I'm always like, yeah, but my kids think mongoose are super cute. You know, so <laughs> what are you going to do? Like you're going to, and then the fact of the matter, and I was teaching, uh, as a biology, uh, I was teaching biology 101 as a teaching assistant here, in, you know, at UH and, uh, you know, all of these kids were coming through and they had no idea and i think it's changed very much now for everyone wants to listen we did an interview with pauline sato people like that are really changing the the understanding that people have but there was no sort of sense of native non-native plants like everything around them and so it's like people are exposed and value these plants so that you can't judge anyone for loving vive i mean my kids love the fruit and love going out and picking <laughs> but um you know it's all about where do you want it and where you don't want them right um but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Gosh, Lonnie, uh, we've, we've kept you for so long. This yeah. has been so interesting and it's really opened my eyes to just, I, I knew a little bit about ranching, certainly about the ecological benefits and we want ranches for any number of reasons, you know, speaking for myself, but I didn't know anything about the, you know, how it runs, what the economics are like, what it's, what it was like before, what it is today. And it's been so interesting for me to hear all of that. So thank you for asking me to talk. I, I did listen to one of your podcasts and it was very interesting. And so you, you'll have Thanks. listening to more of them. Oh, wealth of knowledge. Thanks. Yeah, we think so. The people are coming on it and it's amazing that, you know, we so much appreciate you taking the time. Um, as with everybody, but I think uh, hopefully this will help other folks just kind of see the value that, that this not like knowledge that you have and, you know, your peers, uh, kind of bring to the table. It's, it's, to me, it's like, you know, worth its weight in gold and, 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 and the fact that we're, we are losing it. And I, you know, I, uh, I have such a, um, deep appreciation for, for what you guys know how to do and at the yeah. one scale. So totally. thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah, our pleasure. Our pleasure. Mm -hmm.